0: The History Channel, original podcast. Sports history this week, July 30th, 1966. I'm Kalen Jones. Nearly 97,000 screaming fans are packed inside Wembley Stadium in London... For the biggest football match, or as we'd say here in the United States, the biggest soccer game, in their country's history. England versus West Germany. It's the 1966 World Cup Final. It's the 89th minute. England is ahead two goals to one. West Germany is desperate, but England keeps repelling its attacks. Finally, the West Germans draw a foul outside the penalty area and set up for a last gasp, free kick. England just needs one more stop. The three Lions are mere seconds away from winning their first ever World Cup on their own soil, no less. The anxious home crowd can taste it. And then...
1: One minute to go, just 60 seconds. Every Englishman coming back, every German going forward. It's Emmerich coming in.
0: West Germany's Siggy Held drives a shot toward goal, but the ball spills toward the far post to the feet of Wolfgang Weber, who scores in the 90th minute, sending the match into extra time. Half of the Wembley crowd is delirious, the other half despondent.
1: It was. If you can imagine the whole country thinks they've won the World Cup and then in the last kick of the game, really, they they lose it.
0: The players on both sides are exhausted, mentally and physically. Substitutions at this time are not allowed in World Cup finals except for injuries. So the players are aware of facing another 30 minutes of grueling play, with everything on the line. England manager Sir Alfred Ernest Ramsey known as Alf Ramsey, sees an opportunity.
1: They were all devastated. He says, look at them, they are shattered. You've won it once, go and win it again. And that's all he said to them. And to be honest, the rest is history.
0: Depending on your perspective, what happens next is one of the greatest moments in football history, or most controversial. Today, England wins the 1966 World Cup Drowning out scandal under the jubilation and relief of a soccer-crazed country. How did England conquer the world with the weight of a nation's expectations on its shoulders? And what is the legacy of this English team, which hasn't won since?
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: The English Premier League is comprised of the top 20 clubs in the United Kingdom. But each year, the teams that finish in the bottom three face relegation, meaning they are sent down to a lower division. Meanwhile, the top three finishers in the second division, called the English Championship, get promoted up to the Premier League. Promotion and relegation, a constant adjustment at the start of each season, is a key component of the English football pyramid, which includes more than 100 leagues and thousands of teams. This whole process can frankly sound insane to an American sports fan. Imagine the New York Yankees having one bad season and instead of potentially being rewarded with the MLB Draft's number one pick, suddenly find themselves playing against AAA teams in 5,000-seat stadiums. Or imagine the University of Alabama football team winning the national championship, then joining the NFL the following year. But that's how English football works. Even a mediocre team filled with amateurs can dream that if they keep winning— they too could one day compete against the Liverpools and Manchester United's of the top flight. That is exactly what Alf Ramsey has in mind when he takes over as manager for third division Ipswich Town in 1955. Ramsey leads Ipswich to a division three title in 1957, earning promotion to division two. Within four seasons, they're promoted to the Premier League. The first time ever that Ipswich Founded in 1878, breach England's top division, and they're not done. In 1962, Ipswich finished at the top of the first division standings, from the third division to champions of England's top division, in just a half decade.
2: Mr. Ramsey, you've done it. We just heard that Burnley have drawn. You won the the first division in your first season, and I feel
3: great deal of this is you. How do you feel? I'm fine, um, and I'm delighted. I'm delighted
0: for everyone. After successfully guiding Ipswich to the top of English football, Alf Ramsey becomes the coach of England's national team in October of 1962. And he wants there to be no mistake. This national team is his. He's going to assemble the roster his way, and he doesn't give a damn what anyone else says about it. He took a very pragmatic approach to constructing his teams. That's David Tossel, biographer to two key members of the 1966 team, Alan Ball and Jimmy Greaves. Going into the tournament,
3: I think most people probably thought they had four or five players who would have been called world-class. He wanted a particular system of play, and he was prepared to pick the, the players who would fit into that system best, regardless of whether they were considered to be the best players in the country.
1: Jack Charlton famously pulled Alf Ramsey before the, the, when he got picked to play for England and said, "You know, I'm nearly, I'm nearly 30-something. There, uh, you know, why have you picked me now?"
0: That's John Styles, a former professional footballer and the son of Nobby Styles, a Manchester United defensive midfielder who started on England's 1966 World Cup team. And he said, um,
1: Jack, I have a system I want to play, and I want those players to play in it, and they may not always be the best players. So he said, well, thank, thanks, thanks, Alf, you know. But no, Ramsey, Ramsey was fiercely loyal to his players. So he picked his players, and he, he picked the players he knew wouldn't let him down.
0: In addition to unilateral decision-making over the makeup of his team, Ramsey also implements his own on-field strategy.
4: The way that the team played was quite advanced and quite modern. And this is despite what some critics say. Some critics say it was
0: boring. John Hewson is a professor of sport and cultural studies at the University of Central Lancashire and author of England and the 1966 World Cup, A Cultural History.
4: The style of play, I do think he, he came up with what he called a system, referred to it as a system.
0: That system? A 4-4-2 alignment. Four defenders, four midfielders, and only two forwards. The forwards at the top of the formation have four midfielders behind them in support, three across and one behind, allowing England to flexibly control the center of the field and to have a numbers advantage for counterattacks. The absence of wide attackers earns the team one of the truly great soccer nicknames.
1: They called it the wingless wonders. You know, they used to have an out-and-out winger who played wide.
0: A wing or winger is an offensive player who attacks from the left or right sideline. By positioning those players deeper into the midfield, the two forwards have four midfielders behind them in support, which helps England's attack create havoc for opposing defenses through central channels. The first time
1: he ever played this formation was a couple of months before the World Cup in Spain, and the Spanish players didn't know what to do. England won 2-0, and it could have been 6. He said, we knew, we knew then, we were onto something.
0: Despite Ramsey's innovative changes on the field translating directly into wins, the British media maintains a healthy skepticism that he's the correct man for the job. Plus, many in the media do not like it when he says this. I
3: think, with all sincerity, that we shall sure win the World Cup in 1966.
0: In England,
1: it's not like in, a, in America, perhaps, where everybody likes people to you know, be bold and say what you think. In England, you say something like that, you're, you're going to get... Nobody likes a big head and all that sort of thing. But Alf, Alf was being really honest. He really thought that England would win the World Cup. You know, Ramsey was convinced he could win it. I don't think he ever really had a doubt.
0: Declarations and predictions aside, The expectations for this team are extremely high. At this point, England has played in four World Cups and never made it past the quarterfinals. But this year is going to be different. England has a new coach, a new approach, and above all, they're on their own home turf. Despite the first World Cup being played in 1930, the 1966 tournament is the first held in England the birthplace of soccer. On July 11th, England is set to take on Uruguay in the first match of the tournament. Over 87,000 fans fill Wembley Stadium for its opening ceremonies. Before kickoff, a then 40-year-old Queen Elizabeth, wearing white gloves, a white hat, and a mint green coat, is honored along the midfield touchline.
3: I welcome all our visitors and feel sure that we shall be seeing
1: some fine football.
0: Ramsey puts together a lineup that features some of England's best-ever goal scorers and attackers. Jimmy Greaves, Roger Hunt, and of course, the legendary Bobby Charlton.
1: Bobby Charlton was just incredible. Incredible player, incredible attitude, strong, fast, could shoot with both feet. And he was a one-off. I don't think there's ever been another player really like Bobby Charlton who plays the way he did. Charlton is one of the greatest players the world's ever seen.
0: The clock strikes 7.30 p.m. local when England, dressed in white tops and dark blue shorts, kick a white leather ball to start the competition. For all of England's offensive stars, the match is a defensive battle. England musters a few scoring chances, but Uruguay packs its box full of defenders. Uruguayan goalkeeper Ladislaw Mazurkovic makes several clutch saves to preserve a nil-nil draw. It's the first time England is held scoreless in Wembley since 1938. Uh, they
1: couldn't score, so it was a draw. England got loads of stick, loads of stick off the press. Everybody, you know, Ramsey's this and Ramsey's that.
0: After such a disappointing result in the opener, some coaches might yell and scream at their players, or spend the whole day watching film. Or hold a focused practice. Alf Ramsey goes in a different direction.
1: Alf took them all for a day out. He took them. I think it was Pinewood Studios. So they all they all went and had a good drink and had a good laugh. Um, They met Sean Connery was there. Yul Brynner was there, the great Yul Brynner. And my dad says one of the greatest honors in his life was that he had a wee next to Yul Brynner in the toilet. And he, said it, he said it was just a great day out, and Alf, Alf basically wanted to take all this pressure off him. Alf, Alf just looked after the lads.
0: The decision pays off. Just four days later, England dominates Mexico, winning 2-0. Ramsey starts styles again versus France, and England wins again, 2-0. England has now comfortably advanced through the knockout stage, and Alf Ramsey still hasn't even deployed his secret weapon, the unorthodox 4-4-2 formation.
1: The next time he unveiled that formation wasn't until the quarterfinal against Argentina. Nobody really got it until it was too late.
0: Alf Ramsey finally deploys his 4-4-2 alignment, hoping for an advantage. Instead, England gains a numbers advantage during the first half when Argentine midfielder Antonio Gratin, his squad's captain, Approaches German referee Rudolf Kreitlein and either demands or requests, a translator to explain what he feels are one-sided calls in favor of the English hosts. Kreitline will hear none of it. He gives Routine a red card, kicking him out of the match. Routine would later say, I saw that all of his decisions favored England. Corners, fouls, he even invented handballs. As Routine leaves the pitch... He angrily twists an English-themed corner flag in frustration, drawing ridicule from fans, some of whom throw full beer cans at him. Argentina plays the remainder of the match with only 10 men, but proves stubborn. England finally breaks through in the 78th minute when Jeff Hurst heads in across to score the match's lone goal. Some will refer to the defeat as El Robo del Siglo, the robbery of the century. Things are looking up for England. Through four matches, it still hasn't allowed a single goal, but the road won't get any easier. Awaiting the hosts is Portugal, who's already eliminated the vaunted Brazil team that won the previous two World Cups. And while the controversy of the Three lines quarterfinal victory blows over, controversy will soon cross their path again.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss.
0: Only two games separate England from its first ever World Cup title. In the semifinals, the three lines are set to face Portugal, who has already knocked out Brazil, the two-time reigning world champions, led by the iconic Pele. But Portugal is led by an icon of its own,
1: the unbelievable, fantastic Eusebio, who was the best player in the world at that time.
0: Again, that's the voice of John Styles, whose father, Navi Styles was a defensive midfielder for the 1966 team.
1: Pelle got injured in that World Cup, but Eusebio was the best player in the world. Like, incredible athlete, incredible shot, always wanted the ball.
0: Eusebio wins the 1965 Ballon d'Or as the world's best player. Usually... The game plan for slowing down such a prolific scorer is to have defenders show extra attention, having a player closely mark them all game or even roughing them up. Essentially, erase or enforce. Alf Ramsey turns to the one man on his squad he knows can get the job done, Nobby Stiles. In the group stage, Stiles draws criticism over a rough tackle on French midfielder Jacques Simon, the English Football Association calls for Styles to be dropped. But Ramsey sticks by him. A move that pays off.
1: He had the greatest game of his life against the greatest player in the world. And that's why Alf came out afterwards. And I'll never forget it. He said, um, (laughs) Styles is a great, great player. And I'm proud that he's an Englishman. So, it don't get any better than that. Alf would pick the players who he knew wouldn't let him down and my dad would never have let him down. He'd have gone through a brick wall for him.
0: While Styles slows down Eusebio, England builds up a healthy lead behind a pair of goals from Bobby Charlton. <laughs> Eusebio scores a penalty kick in the 83rd minute, but England prevails two to one. They now have four days to prepare for the biggest match in English soccer history, the World Cup final, on July 30th, 1966, against West Germany. And just as he does after the opening match against Uruguay, Alf Ramsey takes the team on a field trip to the Hendon Hall Hotel Bar, a northwest London venue located in a brick building four and a half miles north of Wembley.
1: Ramsey gets them all together. And he said to them, gentlemen, he said, tonight you may have one pint of beer or lager before you go to bed. Because on Saturday we're going to win the World Cup. And once we win it, I will make sure you're permanently... Well, the word was pissed, and you might have to cut that out. He says, I will make sure you are going to have a proper good drink, because we are going to win the World Cup.
0: Despite the light-hearted team bonding, Ramsey still has the complicated task of setting his lineup for the final. The toughest decision? Whether to play star forward Jimmy Greaves. In the group stage against France... A cleat gashes his leg and requires 14 stitches. Greaves sits on the bench for the quarterfinal and semifinal matches, but he's deemed medically fit to play in the final against West Germany.
4: Ramsey then was faced with this dilemma of sorts as to bring this virtuoso star player back into the team or leave the team as it was with the guys who'd taken him to the final. And these guys who were regarded as Strong, physically capable guys had done a great job. But do you leave the star player out when he's ready to come back? I think most of the journalists writing about football were were banging on the door for Greaves to come back in. And Ramsey kept the door shut and went with uh, Hurst and Hunt as the forwards. And Greaves was left out. Right,
0: right. And I mean... Making those types of decisions, is that what made Ramsey such a great coach? You know, not giving in the pressure and stuff like that?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good point. Yes, I do. It was just unthinkable. It would be like thinking that, you know, the New England Patriots would leave Tom Brady out of one of their Super Bowls. And, you know, even though he was their best player, it's it's just not something that anyone
0: could comprehend. Match day arrives. The entire gaze of the world is on Wembley Stadium. Over 400 million people around the globe tune in on TV. Ahead of the match, it rains. An eerie, dramatic mist settles over the venue. And 11 Englishmen dressed in scarlet red jerseys, bearing white numbers on their backs, the three lines crest on their chest, and the weight of an entire nation's dreams on their shoulders, march out the tunnel. Fans from both sides chant and sing for their countries.
1: The rain has stopped. The excitement is intense. The ground in many places is soft, but the
2: 1966 World Cup Final is underway.
0: Once again, Ramsey lines England up in a 4-4-2. But West Germany strikes first, opening the scoring in the 12th minute when Helmut Haller intercepts an attempted clearance and slots it into the back of the net. Who was the better? To
2: Haller. a goal!
1: West Germany has scored! 12 minutes gone, Helmut Haller has put West Germany in the lead.
0: Just seven minutes later, English team captain Bobby Moore is fouled, leading to a free kick. But rather than taking his time and trying to execute a set play, Moore quickly places the ball down, takes two steps, and...
2: Moore
0: drives a perfect pass to a streaking Jeff Hurst, who heads the ball in for a goal. England 1, West Germany 1. England finally pulls ahead in the 78th minute, when Martin Peters follows up Jeff Hurst's deflected shot and puts home a textbook volley from point blank range. And it turns
1: it down for you. Peters.
0: England has its first lead, 2 to 1. A one goal difference with under 10 minutes to play is not necessarily a death sentence in football, but it certainly feels that way. The broadcast team even asserts that German manager Helmut Schoen is, quote, sensing now that his team is running out of steam. And yet...
1: Now will the Germans snatch a dramatic equalizer and bring us to extra time? It's Emmerich coming in.
2: And he's... Oh, this, it must do. They have done. Weber has scored in the last seconds.
0: West Germany ties it up. Into extra time we go. The tired, frustrated English players gather around Ramsey during the break.
1: I think they gave them oranges to suck on, and no water. I mean, it was really hot that day. I mean, they must have been dehydrated. My dad said he actually felt as though he'd lost control of his his body, his his, his motions. He thought he, you know, he he just gone.
0: Despite the exhaustion, somehow, some way, in the 101st minute a breakthrough for England. Nobby Styles feeds a gorgeous pass down the right sideline to Alan Ball, who darts from his right midfield position and chases it into the corner. He sends a cross to Jeff Hurst, who controls the ball with one touch, and then with his second, unloads a shot toward the net. What happens next is one of the most controversial moments in World Cup history.
2: His ball running himself back and now doing yes. Yes. No. No says no. The says no.
0: The ball strikes the underside of the crossbar and bounces down toward the painted end line. English forward Roger Hunt joyfully raises his fists in celebration, while the West German defenders instantly begin their appeal to the refs that no goal has been scored. The referees huddle up. It's a tense moment. Ultimately, the refs deferred to the linesman, the side judge who typically has the best view of the ball during moments like this. And the linesman awards the goal. It's a goal! It's a goal! Oh, the Germans go mad at the referee.
2: This line.
0: The international football rules are clear. All of the ball must cross all of the line. Otherwise, play continues. What's not clear is whether this orange leather ball fully crosses the line. Even with the assistance of modern technology, slow motion replays, and the benefit of frame-by-frame analysis, it's still basically impossible to tell definitively whether the goal should have been allowed.
4: Not so long ago, you know, studies were done by some scholars, I think both in Germany, but but I think scholars at Oxford University made the same sort of conclusion that the ball didn't completely cross the line. It only fractionally missed, but given the day when the technology, you know, by the naked eye, I, I think we'd have to say, well, I, I don't blame the linesman too much
0: That linesman's name is Tofik Baramov. Baramov is a former professional football player turned referee. And although he comes from the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan, papers around the world refer to him as the Russian linesman. Depending on the publication, of course, he could be described as a national hero or a member of an anti-German conspiracy.
4: There was this sort of suggestion that he might have been biased towards the English because the, the USSR team had been eliminated by Germany. You know, so there was these sort of thoughts that there was some bias there.
0: Some conspiracy theorists even believe that Baramov's motivations go far beyond the football pitch. According to his biography, The Russian Linesman, Tofik Baramov of Azerbaijan, Bravest Man in World Cup History there's a rumor that Barumov looked Germany's Franz Beckenbauer in the eye immediately after awarding the goal and said one word, Stalingrad. The implication is that this goal serves as a form of retribution for the World War II battle between Germany and Russia that left an estimated 2 million dead. Another account from the book says Barumov makes the Stalingrad proclamation on his deathbed. As if to finally admit his true motives from decades earlier. Perhaps these are apocryphal stories. Perhaps they are real. But one fact remains: Tofik Barmov is beloved by English football fans.
1: He'd be one of my favourite Russians, at linesman. To be fair, I think at the moment. I think even the the most
3: ardent of English fans would probably hold up his hand and say, you know, probably that ball never crossed the line. The goal shouldn't have been given. And had it gone against us, we'd probably be still screaming and shouting
0: about it 50, 60 years later. Indeed, decades later, Germans don't seem to be too fond of Barimov and his legacy. The German word for goal, Tor. The German slang term for a shot that hits the crossbar but doesn't actually score a goal, Wembley tour,
1: But it's irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't matter. It, it, it is what it is now, they won it. But I know that um, Franz Beckenbauer did say, England were the best team on the day.
0: Controversial as it may be, the goal stands. Jeff Hurst scores his third goal of the match minutes later, completing the first and only World Cup final hat-trick in the waning seconds. England wins 4-2. The three Lions are victorious. The English players hug and cry. They get a hold of the trophy and lift it to the sky. Soon, they're shaking hands with the Queen. But... One man has not come off the pitch. Alf Ramsey, the man who schemed
1: all this, is still as calm and as cool as ever. He is still standing in the position he's held all
0: Not even a World Cup victory can change the stoic Alf Ramsey's demeanor. I think it was by the goalkeeper, Gordon Banks. It was after the World Cup, they were just
4: sort of breaking up after camp. And Banks said something like, see you again in, you know, next month or something. And and Alf just sort of said, well, yeah, if you're picked. He was very much like that. And he wanted everyone to keep their egos in check.
0: Beyond his trademark enigmatic personality, Ramsey has pushed soccer into a new tactical frontier. His impression on football acumen has grown apparent through the 1960s and lasts well after. Did you know if like other teams or managers started to adopt, you know, similar style, like uh, setups or principles that, you know, Alf Ramsey started?
1: Everybody did immediately after the World Cup. Everybody then started to adopt that way of playing. And really the way England played, it's not far off say the way Italy played in the last Euros, it's very similar even now. Alf Ramsey changed the game completely. They couldn't change the way they were going to play. That was how clever Alf Ramsey was. Like I said, he was just miles ahead of his time.
0: But the rest of the world quickly catches up and even surpasses England in future tournaments. The height of 1966 becomes harder to reach. Despite being the birthplace of football and despite being a hotbed for some of the world's best football talent, in the 56 years since England won the World Cup, it has not lifted a single major trophy. Year after year, the agony of disappointment has weighed on English soccer. It
3: certainly created a lot of expectation that every team since has had to deal with. You know, once you've won once, once you won something once, people know you can do it, and that and they expect it. I mean, England had a historically, England always had a very elevated opinion of its own place in world football. There's always a feeling that that we get a football to the world, if you like.
0: Perhaps one day. England will finally replace heartbreak and disappointment with the ecstasy of conquering world football. Until then, the 1966 triumph remains the height of English football and one of the most memorable runs in the history of the sport. It played out
3: in a way that it always became a bit of a sort of Hollywood film script. One thing I always wonder is, what would have happened had England held on to their two one lead at the end of ninety minutes, it would it would still have been a great achievement, it would have been revered and and I'm sure we would still be talking about it now, but it wouldn't have had that quite that same air of romance that it now has because that the holes are a myth and legacy of England winning the World Cup in sixty six.
0: Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address sportspodhistory.com. Special thanks to our guests John Stiles, son of English soccer hero Nobby Stiles, John Houston, professor of sport and cultural studies at the University of Central Lancashire and author of England and the 1966 World Cup, A Cultural History. And David Tossel, author of Natural, The Jimmy Grieve Story, and Alan Ball, The Man in White Boots. This episode was produced by David Ingberg. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by The Poglomer. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review sports history this week, wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next week.
3: Hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex ultra soft tissues